Please turn with me to Romans 16, verse 20. I've been preaching a little series through the benedictions of the New Testament. And this one is the third and last benediction in the book of Romans that I will preach to you. There's actually one more benediction before Romans 16.20. It's up in 15.33, in case you're curious. Which means that 16.20 is really the fourth benediction in Romans, but I'm going to preach, I'm not going to preach a separate sermon on 15.33 because they're very similar. So I'm going to lump it together with this one. Remember what a benediction is. A benediction is simply a word of blessing. It's literally a good word. We're in the habit here at this church of pronouncing, the pastor pronouncing a benediction after the service. Usually at the end, the New Testament is filled with benedictions. Uh, they most of the New Testament letters have benedictions at them, usually at the end. The unique thing about the book of Romans is that it has four benedictions. We've already looked at the first two, Romans 15, 5, and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, but literally the God of perseverance and encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Romans fifteen thirteen, the second one. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And today we come to the fourth benediction, the last one in the book, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, you can see right away that this is a benediction even though our English translations kind of obscure the fact. You'll notice that in the New American Standard, it's not going to appear on the screen this way, but if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the New American Standard, or probably whatever Bible you're using, separates the first part of verse 20 from the second part. Can any of you see that if you're looking at your your paper Bible? So it makes some sort of visible break between The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So in other words, the English translations makes it look like the second part of the verse is the benediction, but the first part isn't. If you you do a search on the internet, you can search for anything, and if you search for New Testament benedictions, almost none of those lists that you'll find on the internet have the first part of 1620 in it. But I don't think that's right. I think this whole verse is, in fact, a benediction. We know the whole verse is another benediction because it's so similar to the others that we've already looked at. They are, they're actually more similar in the Greek than the English translation makes them out to be. All of them start with the word translated now. So now, may the God of perseverance and endurance. Now, may the God of hope. 1533. Now may the God of peace. That word now is here in 1620. They just didn't translate it. And it obscures the fact that this is exactly the same pattern that we have in the rest of them. Now the God of peace. 
They also are similar in how they name God. You notice all of them have this formula. The God of perseverance and endurance. The God of hope. In 1533 and 1620, the God of peace. They're all the same. So the structure and the words are consistent across the board. This is a benediction. Why the translators obscure that fact at the beginning of 1620 is, is, is baffling to me. But this is the first thing I want really to point out to you. Think about how the Apostle Paul describes God. The God of perseverance and endurance. The God of hope. And now the God of peace. Perseverance and endurance. Hope. Peace. Is that your God? Are those the first words that come into your mind when you start describing him and naming him? Who is God? Well, he is the God of perseverance and endurance and, and hope and peace. Is that the first thing that comes to your mind, these kinds of words? Or do other words come to your mind? Who is God? Well, he is the God of punishment and anger and discouragement and trouble. Wouldn't make for a very good benediction, would it? That's not right. He is the God of perseverance and endurance and hope and peace. He invented perseverance and endurance and hope and peace. He rules over perseverance and endurance and hope and peace. He, he gladly and generously gives his people perseverance and endurance and hope and peace. He's the God of all of those things. So brothers and sisters, let God name himself. You let him name himself. And then believe what he calls himself. So here, he is the God of peace. He uses the same thing up in 1533. Now the God of peace be with you all. What does it mean for God to be the God of peace? What is peace? We all have false ideas of peace rattling around in our heads. Some of us think that peace is a total absence of conflict. Some of us think that peace is just everything going my way. Some of us think of hippies and Volkswagens. Peace. But the Bible talks particularly of two kinds of peace. Peace with God and the peace of God. Peace with God is absolutely necessary in order to have the peace of God. If you don't have peace with God, then you are still his enemy and you cannot have the peace of God. But so many people want to have the peace of God without first making peace with God. And every attempt to have peace apart from bowing to God is utterly stupid. How can you have peace if you hate the God of heaven and earth? How can you have peace if you refuse to bow before the one who made you? How can you have peace if you refuse to trust the God of peace? Scripture says this, Therefore, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, which is the prerequisite for, we now have peace with God. The only way to have peace with God is to trust the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation. If you're hoping in anything else, you cannot have peace with God. Certainly not the peace of God. Why? Because Isaiah 57, 21 says this, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace for the wicked. But all of us come into this world wicked. And so there is no peace for us. We come into this world as enemies of God. We come into this world God-haters. How can God-haters have peace with God, let alone the peace of God? If we reject the God of peace, all we should have is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10.27 says that. You reject the God of peace, then all you should expect is judgment. But the God of peace has offered to us terms of peace. And the terms of peace he's offered to us are signed and sealed in the blood of his Son. This meal is a picture of the terms of peace laid out for us. The blood of the Son of God has been spilt. The body has been broken. Come and submit to me and you'll have peace. And if you come to him on his terms, which is complete surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, no bargain making, no deals, complete and utter surrender, then you will in fact have peace. You will no longer be an enemy of God. You will be a son of God. And as a son of God, you'll have peace. You will have the God of peace as your father. You will have the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your Lord and brother. And having peace with God, you will also have the peace of God. You'll have the peace that the God of peace gives to all who trust him. Philippians 4.7, the peace of God, the peace that God gives, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26.3 says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Psalm 29.11, the Lord will give strength to his people, the Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 119, 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Do you remember what Jesus Christ says over and over again to his people when he's about to go and be crucified? Here's what he says. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. He says this, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Peace. When he is raised from the dead, he's been crucified, raised from the dead, he appears to his people on several 
occasions to his disciples, what does he say every time? What's the first words out of his mouth? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. You will have the peace of God if you come to Christ. But there is such a thing as false peace. The Bible is filled with warnings about false peace. And the world and the church are filled with ministers of false peace. We read about this all through the Bible. In Jeremiah 8, 11, God says this about these ministers of false peace. He says, They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Can you imagine going to a doctor? You need to be healed. You have cancer. There's something very seriously wrong with you. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, here, uh, take this. You're fine. You're fine. There's, there's nothing wrong. You're better now. Go home. You're fine. What has he just done? He's just sentenced you to death. Peace, peace. Healing the wound superficially. Jeremiah 23, 17 This is God speaking. He says, these ministers of false peace, they keep saying to those who despise me, these ministers of false peace keep saying to to those who despise God, who hate him. They keep saying to those who despise me, quote, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come on you. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a perfect representation of so much of the church today. It's why these warnings are here. It was true then, it's true now. False peace Many, many people in our land having their their deadly sickness cured superficially, remaining in their hatred of God, and yet nevertheless thinking, nothing bad will happen to you. Peace, peace. Beware of false peace. Beware of thinking you are at peace with God when you have not bowed your knee to him. Beware of listening to false preachers who tell you peace, peace, when there is no peace. This country is filled with them. You and I are susceptible to them. Peace with God only comes through submission to Christ. It only comes with repentance and faith in Jesus. So, God is the God of peace. And we must have peace with God in order to have the peace of God. But notice, what, what, notice the rest of the benediction. What does the rest of this benediction say? It seems like a strange combination. He says, the God of peace, the God of peace will soon, what? 
crush Satan under your feet. What? That just doesn't sound very peaceful. Sounds kind of violent. Crushing. The God of peace will soon crush. Many of us assume that Jesus Christ is a pacifist. So we see him as a soft man kind of floating around in a glow with his band of hippies sticking flowers in the guns of the Pharisees. You know? Hey, man. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus Christ does, in fact, bring peace. But he brings peace not by surrendering to his enemies, not by giving in to his enemies, not by capitulating to his enemies. No, he brings peace by crushing his enemies. Peace comes through the victory of Christ. Peace comes through the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9 is one of those passages that we only think about at Christmas time. And you'll know why when I start reading it. But it's, it's something that has bearing all the time. Here's what it says, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, all right? A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Government, reign, rule of Christ, and peace. That's where the peace comes from. Same thing in Zechariah 9.10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he, the Messiah, will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There will be peace on earth. But it will come through the dominion and the government and the reign of Christ Jesus. It will come as he breaks them with a rod of iron and shatters them like earthenware, Psalm 2 says. And who's the ultimate enemy of King Jesus? Who is the ultimate enemy of the king? It's Satan. And so the God of peace will crush Satan. Of course, what is he talking about? This is a reference to something all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Think back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. After God had made Adam and Eve, he put them in the Garden of Eden to work and to worship God. Satan tempted Eve to disobey God. And when she rebelled against God's command, command Adam listened to his wife and he, he rebelled too. And at that point, Adam led his entire race, all of mankind, into sin and all the terrible consequences of sin. And God comes to them after this terrible thing and pr pronounces curses on them. The woman 
was cursed by God to have great pain in childbirth. The man was cursed by God to have pain in his work of providing. Even the ground itself was cursed by God. It'll bring forth from now on thorns and thistles. And Satan, the lying snake, is cursed too. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The enemies of God and of his bride, the church, will bite the dust. Queen didn't make that up. It comes from here. This is true of Satan himself, and it's also true of all of God's enemies. Psalm 72, 8 and 9. May he also rule, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. All of them. Micah 7, 16 and 17. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. Or Isaiah forty nine twenty three: Kings will be your guardians, and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. All the enemies of God will lick the dust. And the ultimate death blow comes when the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, crushes the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to this earth. He crushed the head of the serpent. Colossians 2.15, when he, Jesus Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he's talking about Satan and his demons, he, he disarmed them, took away their weapons, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them. He did that. Disarmed them, triumphed over them, led them, led them out to judgment publicly. Hebrews 2.14, therefore since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, likewise also partook of the same. He became a man, took on flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He did that. He died and rendered powerless the one who has the power of death, the devil. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. And our Lord did that when he suffered on the cross. John chapter 12 is Jesus talking to God, the Father, 
right before the cross, right before he knows exactly what is happening. He's about to be crucified. Listen to what he says, John 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Lifted up from the earth, hung on a cross. Ruler of the world cast out, Satan. Luke 10. Our Lord also does this crushing of the serpent's head, not just through his actual work on the cross, but also through the preaching of his gospel. So in Luke chapter 10, he gathers together 70 disciples, not the 12, 70 others, and sends them out to preach throughout the land of Israel. Here's what it says, Luke 10, 1 to 3. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And they go out and they preach. And amazing things happen. And they come back to report what they've done. In verse 17, it says this. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I know. (laughs) He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. This is not talking about snakes in church. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Through the preaching of the gospel, Satan was cast down to the dust of the earth. Through the preaching of the gospel, the disciples tread on the serpent. Satan receives his crushing blow through the work of Christ on the cross and also through the proclamation of that work to the nations. And that's exactly the point of this benediction in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is your work. This is a word of blessing to Christians. This is a word of blessing to you. So take heart. Be strong. Be faithful. 
The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Through the proclamation of his work, this crushing continues. Praise God for this. We do not honor Jesus Christ if we refuse to believe it. Now I want to end with one last thing. In a little while, many of us, and if you're able, please come. Many of us will be standing at the courthouse downtown and walking through the streets of Bloomington in protest against the bloody work of Satan. Abortion is the bloody work of Satan. Satan is, remember, Jesus says, a murderer from the beginning. This is the work of Satan. So we will be standing at the courthouse, we'll be marching, walking downtown in protest against the bloody work of Satan and in defense of life for unborn babies. How many of you have ever been there and done that in years past? It feels pitiful, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, it feels so pitiful. You'll feel outnumbered by either the hateful or the apathetic, either way. There will be resistance, you know that. But what else would you expect? Heads of snakes don't crush easily. But wait, remember, God has spoken. He has acted. Jesus Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. He has rendered Satan powerless. Don't look out there. Look here. He's rendered Satan powerless. It's true. He has given his church authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So go. Work. Speak. Proclaim the rule of Christ. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we do ask that you would give us faith for this work. That we would, in fact, believe what you have said. That we would, in fact, believe the power and the efficacy of what you have done. And of your purposes in sending us out. Lord, give us faith. I pray for those here, Lord, who have not bowed their knee to you, who do not have peace with you, who are in fact your enemies. Lord, have mercy on them. Cause them to see their sin and to run to Jesus Christ, to surrender and to find the peace of God. We pray in Christ's name, amen.